Hello, and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and how people define happiness and success. My name is Graham Walcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I'm talking to Lucy Clayton and Steve Haynes. They are the authors of a book called How to Go to Work, The Honest Advice No One Ever Tells You at the Start of Your Career. So before we get into that, a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, The first is Black Lives Matter. So if you are not yet on my mailing list, if you go to graymalcott.com, you can sign up there. Each week, I'm basically sending out uh, this thing called Rev Up for the Week. And it's basically one positive or interesting idea to just help get you set for the week ahead. So it comes out on a Sunday evening. You can read it Sunday night if you want. You can read it Monday morning on your commute. Remember those? And uh, the idea is to just kind of um, share something, usually productivity or kind of leadershipy related. Um, But yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I did a thing on Black Lives Matter on there. Um, And I want to just kind of share a couple of responses to it. So the first thing is I was quite prepared to get quite a big percentage of unsubscribes because it's kind of seen as like a political thing and you know as someone who just talks about productivity should I really be dabbling in politics and whatever uh those of you who know me well will know that uh you know that really stops me uh I used to be very gobby on twitter and decided to to pack that in um and guess what zero unsubscribes like zero and also just some really nice uh, messages back with people saying it helped them to articulate their own thoughts on it and uh, people just you know uh, really recognizing for the first time where they might have had some biases or weren't aware of certain things so uh, that was really great and I just wanted to I guess I just wanted to say that it it's really struck me over the last week that hang on like this change is really happening this time I'm someone who gets quite cynical about these things. I, you know, I find I found the whole black tile social media thing, that Blackout Tuesday thing, just really problematic. It's like, do we have to turn something that's really serious into this kind of shallow, participatory social media thing? Um, you know, and really, the the real work is what goes on in real life, in real conversations, and uh, you know, challenging policies in your workplace thinking about your own biases, thinking about, uh, you know, your own decisions or treatment of people or whatever, you know, and I think um, it's for for the same reason I'm really anti stuff like children in need and comic relief and telethons in general, all that stuff, because it feels to me like it puts in a neat Tupperware box the idea that people need to care. So people do their like, you know, they do their sponsored event or whatever, one, you know, watch children need one Friday every year. And then it kind of feels like for the rest of the time, oh, well, that's taken care of. I did my bit. And, you know, I get that sometimes in life we need ceremony and stuff, but I think it's more interesting just how we behave and the choices that we make just all the rest of the time when there isn't a spotlight on us and when we're not seemingly all under pressure to uh, walk out of the kind of virtual houses outside of our house and deliver the kind of virtual on the steps of 10 Downing Street statement to our virtual audience. You know, uh, I just find this really bizarre that it's like every brand and every person needs to come out and kind of 
make a you know, kind of serious personal statement, you know, that basically is cut, like cut and pasted from, from everybody, everybody else's statements. I just don't think that is um, the best way to make change. But I think um, the last week or so, there's been a couple of things where I've really thought, oh, hang on, this is this is happening. This is great. One was the the toppling of the statue of Colston into the into the harbour in Bristol. Um, that just felt like a really historic moment. I love the fact that the uh, I think it was the mayor of Bristol said this happening, this throwing the the statue into into the sea. This is now part a uh, part of its history, right? And I just think that's just just so amazing to witness that. The other one was cycling down to the seafront um, last Saturday uh, with my son Roscoe on the back of the bike, expecting to see about a thousand people for a, a demonstration that was happening in Brighton for Black Lives Matter. And I don't know how many people were there, 10,000, 15,000, something like that. It was huge. And, you know, Brighton can be, Brighton's a very white place, but it can be a very politicised um, you know, open to politics kind of place. And just to see just the sheer volume of people there just made me think, wow, this this feels different and that's really promising. So I guess, you know, the reason for saying this is uh, my my cynicism for Blackout Tuesday and putting up a black tile on social media is that, you know, we need to prolong the conversation and it needs to keep going. And it probably needs to keep going longer than most people are um, like willing to do it before they get tired, right? Like we kind of have to get tired of this for it to actually start to make a difference. So, so I guess the main point of this is to say, let's keep this conversation going um, even much longer than it feels comfortable to. And then we might be in with a shot. So it's it's promising. It's a really interesting time, and um, yeah, really promising to to see what what might come next. So, if you want to check out the blog, by the way, that I did, uh, that was part of the Revit for the week about Black Lives Matter, we've put that on my blog at graymalcott.com. So, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Getbeyondbusy.com. We'll put links to everything in there as per usual. Uh, go check that out. Also, lovely to see that uh, Aston Villa have resumed action. Lovely also to see both teams doing the uh, get down on one knee thing um, just as the game kicked off. It Just the the cho- choreography of that and the moment of that was just something to behold. So, you know, really good to see, really exciting. And, you know, in a weird way, exciting to see a really boring nil-nil draw because <laughs> that's obviously inevitably what the Villa game tended to. And it's like the spotlight's on us to be like the first Premier League game back. It had to be awful, didn't it? But, uh, you know, it wouldn't be Villa if it wasn't awful. So, yeah, hey-ho. Uh, so speaking about getting back to some level of normality, uh, so this episode is with Lucy Clayton and Steve Haynes. It was recorded just before lockdown at the offices of Penguin uh, on the Strand in London. And I'm offering this one up now as a little bubble of normality. So we talk in here about loads of really 
just really well observed little things that happen in offices and organizations. Uh, the book is basically a career guide for people at the start of their career. And it's like the manual of, of how to go to work and what to do in jobs and how to deal with office politics and all that sort of stuff. So as you can imagine, I pick out a lot of the more sort of nitty gritty, slightly taboo kind of subjects about office life, work life. Uh, so if you're pining for the office a little bit, pining for normality a little bit, pining to uh, get on the train or in the car or on the tube, and go to a desk, uh, meet with your colleagues and all that kind of stuff, then I hope this is a nice bubble of normality, a little escape. And uh, let's get into it. This is Lucy Clayton, Steve Haynes and me in the offices of Penguin in London just before lockdown. Let's do it. Um, I'm here at Penguin. I'm with Lucy Clayton and Steve Haynes. Hello. 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 Um, so you've just written this book, um, mm-hmm. which we're going to talk about a bit later, but I'm going to talk about you guys first. Okay. Um, so the book is How to Go to Work. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to start with, um, let's just paint the picture of the work that you guys do yourselves before we get into the book itself. So, so Lucy is pointing. I'm pointing. I'm just delegating the answers. <laughs> Which is rare, but I'm enjoying it. Uh, so here's my moment in the limelight. Uh, both of us have worked a lot with people at the start of their careers, people who are um, just younger than us and uh, getting those first steps on the career ladder. Um, Lucy ran the famously dubbed University of Advertising, the J. Walter Thompson uh, uh, graduate recruitment programme. Many years ago. And I worked a lot with young people through um, Save the Children and through my current work at the National Deaf Children's Society. Um, And so a lot of the grounding from the book came from our practical experience of working with people who were just younger than us. And we kept seeing the same issues come up, the same frustrations or the same lack of knowledge. Uh, So the idea for the book very much came from our own professional backgrounds and the work that we were doing um, with people at the start of their careers. And we thought it was about time to write some of this advice down. What was fascinating when we started doing the book was actually just a pen and a piece of paper and the list flowed so quickly (laughs) Mm. of all the things that no one ever tells you Uh, and yet we'd experienced time and time again and as we talked to more of our contributors in many other fields we actually found the same things coming up so this is a book that came directly from our experience something of our frustration and definitely our willingness to just be on the side of all of these people just starting out and trying to find their way through uh, what work should be about and some of the realities of what it actually is about as well. I think sometimes it's quite surprising to think about there's a sort of common thread that runs through a lot of those things that are unknown at the beginning or that cause anxiety as you're starting out in your career. And what we notice is those things are the same, whether you are a grad with the starriest degree and, you know, you've won short film awards and you've work experience all the way around the world or whether I mean most recently I'd been running a social enterprise and a fashion company community clothing which works a lot in, with UK factories creating jobs um, very much sort of factory floor jobs uh, and as part of that we partner with um, lots of people who are helping the long-term unemployed often young people uh, back into work and I noticed that there is a thread of the unknown and the things that are worrying that are the same whether you are doing that kind of entry-level job or a graduate entry-level job. And so it seems ridiculous that there hadn't been a kind of collection of those thoughts and that sort of rock-solid basic advice from 
you know, how to sort of conduct yourself in the workplace, how to get dressed at work, how to forge relationships with bosses, those common themes that are, are the same whether you are in the NHS or in fashion or in advertising or in an NGO. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, setting yourself the challenge of writing the what to expect when you're expecting mm. book, but for work. Yeah. And then you think about the question, well, why did that not exist before? Yeah. I suppose the yeah. answer is because the job was mainly with careers advisors. Mm. Yes. And I had terrible careers advisors <laughs> through school and university. And it was like the day I realised that the careers advisor has the shittest job in the university. <laughs> right? uh, you know, you sort of go, oh, so why are they the ones advising me? So um, where did, did you have a sense of where people were getting that advice from? before you wrote the book or was it yes. just that they were just coming to you like where, where else yeah, were so, people looking for that kind of guidance well you would think that in the years since we were all at school it would have become a lot more sophisticated and but the truth is it hasn't really so the kind of wonky cd-rom that we all probably did sitting in a library at 16 <laughs> in a porter cabin library uh there's a version of it it's not on a cd-rom anymore but it's the same kind of crude set of questions mm, that yeah. ends up sort of spits you out at the end and suggests that you become a vet um or in the case of my sister who is a very brilliant early years teacher now and a very happy early years teacher yeah. i can't think of anyone who is as fulfilled in her job as she is and uh that process suggested that she become a funeral director <laughs> so i think it's fair to say that one of the things we say in the book is even if the advice comes from supposedly an official source mm. doesn't mean necessarily it's the best possible advice um so it's kind of startling that that hasn't become more nuanced or more refined over the years um the other thing the other insight i guess that at the very beginning was really front of mind for us in the writing was uh, i was mentoring a, a wonderful person called poppy who at the time wasn't really sure what direction she wanted to go in and was at a kind of critical time in terms of age and education for making some quite big decisions and I remember in one of the sessions where we were talking through all her options and trying to kind of uh, give her a little bit more sense of what might be the right path to follow she had a sort of moment of epiphany where she just said oh my God, I only had what my parents told me and they were wrong about everything. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that resonates with quite a lot of people's experience. Yeah. Parents are, of course, supposedly entirely on your side and they are gunning for you, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have the right context or that their experience is relevant to what you want to do or the modern world of work. Mm. And so again, one of the things we've tried to do in the book, and we've spoken to a lot of parents of... Uh, people who are just sort of leaving university now and, and they're sort of, the fact that they are thrilled that the book exists, I think says something about a desire on all sides to kind of understand a little bit more about the, the landscape that yeah. graduates particularly are going into um, right now. And what's fascinating in the evidence in terms of where people look to for advice, it is absolutely the parents by a long way. Yeah. Um, and that has a real challenge in it. And we talk about this in the book um, about embedding privilege and access to yeah. certain careers. Um, it, we talk in there about the it's not what you know, it's who yeah, you know yeah. myth. Yeah, and it certainly is a myth. So some of the things we've tried to pull out are about equalising the playing field yeah. um, for people going to work. The second is obviously teachers, hugely supportive, very inspirational. And a lot of, in our podcast, we, we have people talking about their biggest influence being mm -hmm. some of their teachers. And there's a wonderful 
uh, conversation about a head teacher who genuinely turned the life around of um, one of our guests. So I think they're a huge source of advice. But let's remember, teachers are brilliant and varied and all over different careers and backgrounds, but many of them are teachers fundamentally. They don't have access to that industry insight or that bit of knowledge. And the third part is careers advisors, and they've suffered a lot over Mm -hmm. the past few years, and there's enough evidence out there in government reports and some good efforts to try and update that um, sector and that industry. But, you know, the world of work renews itself generation by generation. Mm. Um, My dad was an electrician. He worked in a factory for 40 years at the same factory. And I do something around public policy. And frankly, he's got no points of (laughs) reference to what I do. (laughs) So from the age of about 21 onwards, he was entirely useless, uh, but Um, (laughs) well-meaning. The other thing I think is that we now have extraordinary access to information. And one of the things that really worries me is misinformation that's Mm. going to um, a lot of people at the start of their career. And again, something we talk about in the book, which is this, you know, all you need to do is believe in yourself. Um, That can actually be quite damaging unless you've got those practical skills to be able to Mm. operate in the workplace, the kind of productivity skills that your book talks a lot about, Graham. You know, how can you actually apply that in work? So we see this contrast between feeling unprepared, an education system that does all the right things about helping you pass exams, but none of the right things about suddenly going into a workplace where you're working next door to somebody who's 50, you're trying to navigate through an industry with no guidebooks, no curriculum uh, behind you, and lots of bits of wonky advice all around you that aren't really helping. So I think the the sources of advice are doing their best, but they've all got an incomplete picture. So the idea was, can we just pull as much of this as we can, put it in one place and give it a sense of authority, a guidebook um, that you need, like you mentioned, like what to expect when you're expecting a, a rite of passage where you just have something you can fall back on that at least gives you a bit of a steer through that difficult time. And the yeah. other thing about careers advisors is, that's worth saying, I think, is obviously they are under-resourced and stretched, particularly in if, if you're talking about you know, a bog-standard comprehensive school, for mm. example, like the one I went to. Um, but also, I think you've got to be realistic about what they're capable of doing. Uh, you know, in the book, we talk about most of the jobs that the people we're writing for will end up doing haven't actually been invented yet. Mm. So can you honestly expect someone who, as in their role of careers advisor, may have, well, put it this way, mostly worked in a school to have a comprehensive sense of all of the possible future jobs for you at 16? Of course you can't. You know, that would be insane. And even if they were the best person in the world at their job, they would still only have a limited perspective. Mm. And I think one of the things that we want the book to do is to explode the idea that those limited perspectives that you are offered at 16 or again at 21 is is the end of the picture. I think that's really... And I went to the the kind of school where that sense of institutionalised low expectation was something that is really oppressive if you are at the very beginning of, you know, what is about to become your working life. Mm. And we want the book to kind of, I think, to empower and challenge that, what is quite a, a depressing and, and unfortunately really common sense of attitude or collection of attitudes yeah and i sort of you know i definitely feel for people starting their career now where they're starting with the premise of a huge student debt probably yeah Mm -hmm. um you know or they're going into a situation where the minimum wage has been sort of 
diminished for younger people. So if you're starting an apprenticeship, yeah. whatever, you're on such a small amount of money that you can't really be expected to live off it. And you've got to kind of live with your parents mm. for a while to do that. Yeah. And it's like these things get harder and harder at the at the beginning of a career. Um, but it kind of what was sort of interesting was, you know, you talk about in the book a lot of the sort of high points of of people's jobs and kind of you know think things that are going to go really well within people's jobs but then you always you also talk about the warts and all um you know and uh the perhaps the things that are often left unsaid or are, are very difficult to find written mm. down you know which again is a careers advisor gonna know about crying in the toilet yeah <laughs> we'll come back to but yeah so it kind of feels like it's um, a really nice way of exposing the good and the bad mm. Uh, you know, and, and, and kind of seeing all these things. So one thing that really struck me was internships, right? Because mm. another thing about the current uh, first routes into jobs versus when we were probably starting out careers is like internships now is such a much bigger thing. And I was really interested in, there was a piece in there that uh, talked about somebody's experience as a manager of interns mm. and some of the kind of lessons of, um, as an intern yeah. is what to do and what not to do yeah and it kind of struck me that it's like yeah you want to get noticed and yeah you want to sort of play that game but then also there's like certain things that you could really sort of piss off your first <laughs> yes. boss. yeah um, so do you want to talk about um that dynamic of interns and you know coming into an organization what they're trying to get out of it and, and what the employer is trying to get out yeah. of it because I, I just found that really interesting i think there's a huge pressure uh on interns, you're there, you know you're there for a limited period of time. You want to make the best impression. And for you, it's really significant that it feels like a high impact use of your time. Uh, but for the employer, it probably doesn't feel like that. So there is a sort of disconnect in expectations. And what we talk about in the book, it's a um, one of the contributors. We thought, who better to talk about how to be the best possible intern than uh, someone who has experienced so many of them uh, in an industry that thrives on internships. So uh, it's Gabby Deeming, um, a friend of ours who uh, is at Condé Nast, and she has written the sort of the this, yes, the sort of crib sheet of how to be the best possible in term. Um, the first thing to say is, and we talk about it elsewhere in the book, there is nothing wrong with enthusiasm. And enthusiasm, frankly, has become, as a sort of um, personality style, it seems to have become quite unfashionable. Um, there's a lot of sort of uh, body language that's about sort of shrugging or looking like you don't really give a shit. And mm. there is nothing that winds people up. Playing it cool. Than, like, than looking yeah. like you don't care. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and quite often it's completely at odds with the fact that you care a huge amount, especially if you're there on, mm. you know, a couple of months internship. Of course you care. Um, so there's a whole thing about just being, seeming and behaving keen is probably the most useful thing you can do. Now, that doesn't mean talking constantly or assuming that you'll be able to run the company by midday on your first yeah. day, but it does mean offering up your services it does mean saying and one of the things that she says in that extract which is brilliant is you know don't underestimate the impact of the should i just kind of yeah. starting sentences with the <clears throat> offer of yeah. uh, because also you might as an intern you may find yourself working to someone who isn't that senior and so actually hasn't got a lot of experience of managing people mm. so therefore you know try to see it from their perspective sometimes having an intern can feel a little bit like babysitting and other times you might be 
uncomfortable asking them to do something or giving them instructions. So to offer, to say, should I go and get that file from reception? Mm. That's a bad example. But, you know, <laughs> um, I'm using an example from the 1940s. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, offering up really specific things just shows people that you're in it to make it to make everybody's job easier. Yeah, making it easy for somebody to to delegate to you the stuff that mm. might be quite sort of drudgy work but we all exactly. know it needs to be done in that moment so it's like make, making that easy for that person yeah it's amazing yeah and and the other one was like what was that bit where it was like um don't swan around like <laughs> like you've conquered the universe on yeah. the third day or whatever like be a little bit humble yeah right? and sort of I just thought that was a really interesting one. Well, there's so much soft stuff and, and assumptions and a lot of industries do rely on internships. Um, and actually, there's been quite a lot of bad practice in some of those industries yeah, sure. as well. So let's remember that um, there's, there's a lot of goodwill uh, that brings in uh, interns to try and make sure they get their exposures to the workplace. And there's some pretty pernicious behaviour, which is about underpaying people. So we try to give an overview um, to people who are interested in doing an internship about what to navigate, what, what mm. the good stuff looks like and what the bad stuff looks like. But I hope also that this is the kind of thing that somebody who's an employer who wants to bring an intern in is perhaps feeling a bit worried about the realities of managing it. Almost we can give this advice that they could then give to their intern and say, this is the stuff you need to know. Because it is a really different environment to work. It is a very different place to be. And if you've had... Uh, especially if you're coming from school where the bell goes at the start of the day and at the end of the day, you know when your Mm -hmm. lunch break is. We've heard these terrible stories of interns getting to sort of six, half past six at night and going, when do I go home? Mm. Because they're not being shared even that basic knowledge, let alone, as you say, things like enthusiasm or the soft skills or humility. You do have to spell this stuff out. So I I think I've said it the other way around, by the way. A couple of years ago in Think Productive, we had a couple of interns work with us. um, And they were actually, so they were university students and they were doing a kind of summer placement. And we were sort of in the middle of a meeting at about five o'clock. And it was like two minutes to five. And you could see them just getting <laughs> tetchy. We're still in the middle of the meeting. We, it's clear that we're going to wrap up in the next yeah. 10 minutes. It's like, it's clear where the meeting's going to. Yeah. And they literally just stood up and they were <gasps> like, uh, it's five o'clock. Right. <laughs> wow, sir. And obviously you're in this weird mm. position where you're in the middle of a meeting and you don't really want to stop everybody else mid-flow mm. and have a five-minute conversation about whether that's the right thing to do or not. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Obviously they're sort of it's technically pretty awkward. something in the right yeah, 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 thing yeah. until five. And so, but it was just this really awkward thing of, okay, so now we just don't know what to say or what to do. Right. So moment. we talk about that. We say, do not run from the building, specifically, <laughs> do not run from the building if all your colleagues are still <laughs> working. I mean, stuff like that sounds basic, but maybe it isn't. Maybe if you the, think, the bell yeah, the, go, yeah right? or if it's written down in your, in the agreed contract or that, you know, five o'clock is, is home time. Mm. That, but again, it's sort of t- what we say is take the, take your cue from those around you. Mm. But I think it is really important to say with internships, it has been an area it's getting better but you know particularly in industries like mine in fashion it can be hugely exploitative there can be you know there are whole industries that famously run on uh, free inverted commas talent yeah. and that's dangerous and wrong and so things like you know what to do if you're being exploited we cover those mm. things because uh, whilst it is getting better you still need to know your rights in those situations mm. yeah for sure um let's talk let's talk about that a little bit more then in terms of bad bosses because yes. um, this is another thing it just feels like there's all these uh, experiences that 
you know, if you've worked for 10, 15 years, mm. you've probably come across bad bosses. You've come, you've probably come across politics yeah. and bullying, whatever. But no one's ever really sort of mm. written them all in one place. <laughs> you know what I mean? In a way it's bleak. It's a bleak uh, chapter. <laughs> uh, pick this stuff up. But all, all that was sort of like my favourite stuff in the book because it really, um, yeah, because it just kind of surfaced all these mm. things. But there's a, you have a lovely line that says, um, treat a bad boss as if it's a training exercise. Yeah. Um, which really, yeah, got me thinking about what did I learn from uh, points where I've had bad bosses. And I think you tell yeah. us a similar story. I'm, I'm right? hoping that the person that I write about unnamed in the book uh, is not able to identify herself. But um, I had a really bad boss at the very beginning of my career. So I was... I'd finished my graduate trainee bit and was a, a kind of just, I guess, a young new person uh, working in an ad agency um, within a fashion account. And um, and I think it, I recognised even at the time through the fog of my misery, my daily misery, uh, that it was super useful uh, because that person's leadership style and to a certain extent, I suppose, personality style in that example, uh, became a blueprint for everything that I didn't want to be mm. professionally. And I genuinely think that I have held true to those lessons pretty much every day of my working life since. Yeah. Um, it really Speak, was... To strive to be the opposite. To be the opposite. <laughs> and, and there are often times when, particularly if you're, you know, running a, a, a big team or you're particularly under pressure or you're stressed, where, you know, you do have to uh, check your instinctive responses to a thing. And I think it's been really useful for me to kind of think, well, what would she have done in this situation and do the opposite, even, you know, 15 years later. Um, now, that doesn't mean that it's easy and it doesn't mean that you have to do it for a long time. But I do think just knowing that if you're having a really difficult time with a really bad boss is some kind of comfort, actually, because and actually, I think it's super useful at the beginning of your career. I don't know whether it's as useful if it happens kind of midway through. I think perhaps for me, it was that it was so early on that it was just really instructive. Mm. I mean, yeah, everything from tone of voice to how you play people off on one another mm. to uh, sort of publicly rewarding and acknowledging credit. And a lot of the things in the book that we talk about as best practice come from our experiences of having worked with mm. both brilliant people, and we talk about also in the book what you can learn from working with brilliant people, yeah. but I don't think people are particularly honest about what you can learn from the bad experiences too. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really good. I think for me, I had a, a bad boss experience very early on and then a really great mm. boss experience. And I think the two of them... Together are perfect, yeah, right? Yeah, like mm. both sort of shaped me in similar ways. But, you know, some of the stuff you've got in here where it's like, the bad boss is sticking to their vision, their plan, even in the face of the evidence that they are wrong. <laughs> um, sucking energy rather than inspiring with op opportunity and, and optimism. And this one, uh, kicking you for mistakes rather than helping you grow. Mm. I mean, on one level, that sounds really basic, right? But I think it all sounds really basic. But we all know that when you're working with someone who perhaps... Um, doesn't exhibit those qualities or exhibits the opposite of them, then, you know, it, it can be very, very difficult to simply get through the day to day. And a lot of that is because you feel like the rules are always changing or that the ground you're standing on isn't stable. And at the beginning of your career, that can feel like, oh, well, this is just what work is. But of course mm. it isn't. It's just what work with that person yeah. is. Yeah. And I hope that through the book, we can give some good questions and some good pointers to help 
people get a bit of perspective because it is really simple to think this is how all bosses are or this is how all workplace cultures operate and not have that sense of that gut sense that you develop much later of hang on this isn't right mm. i'm not being given the opportunities i need to mm. or i am actually learning some pretty bad lessons along the way so almost prompting that question in the mind we talk a lot in the book about key questions to observe about culture, things you might want to ask yourself about documenting a lot of that. And it can almost build up to a, a guidebook that you'd write yourself alongside this book yeah. of what is this yeah. place really like? Mm -hmm. And give you something to talk to your friends or again, back to those sources of advice to say, is this what I should be expecting? And uh, it reminds in this me of, um, so Penguin have been giving the book to all their new starters and their interns ever since I think we submitted mm. the first kind of, you know, first oh, cool. draft version yeah. and they did a brilliant thing where uh, all of the current interns had read it and they filmed them to camera oh, um, i've seen that video i didn't realize they were all penguin people yeah yeah it was a really good idea um of leo who's on our sort of our team for the book we will link to that in the show notes so yeah that's that, yeah. it's really great and um and it was great for us because it was a real moment where we realised that what we'd set out to do was landing. It was it was kind of being received in the spirit that we intended it, yeah. which of course, when you're writing it, you're never sure that it will be. So that was a relief. Uh, but the uh, one of the one of the people who talking to camera uh, says, "I wish I'd had it at my very first job, which I think was in a marketing company, mm. because I wasn't sure." what was normal and what I should put up with or went, whether I could leave or not. And I think that actually is a really um, common experience in your first job. Quite a few people have their first job straight out of university and then spend a lot of time think, being delighted originally to get the job and then think, oh my God, this is absolutely not what I thought it was. Or, or this makes me miserable. And mm. yet I, I'm one of the lucky ones. I've got a job. So how could I possibly? Mm. And so the sections that we talk about, about you know, toxic cultures or when to quit, I think are reassuring kind of step by step, you know, check in with this. You know, because when you have no context, you know, you're probably turning up every day still feeling lucky, even if you might be in the right place or the fit is wrong or any of those things. So I thought that was really interesting that she identified that. Yeah. Um, you just reminded me of my favourite quote from the book, uh, which is uh, <laughs> talking about leaving parties. Mm. <laughs> uh, it says, do not misbehave at your leaving party. Stay sensible. Eat something large at 5pm nurse one drink from six till eight and then take it sensibly until taxi time. You'll regret every other version of this evening. <laughs> it's true though. I honestly, that was... <coughs> Is that uh, not true? Heart, <laughs> so Although it does make really us sound true. like everyone's mother, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Go home. <laughs> um, have you had some horrendous leaving party experiences? Is that where that came Oh, from? yeah. I mean, I've had, I've been to leaving parties where people have broken limbs. So <laughs> it's not... <laughs> I, I feel like I'd be neglecting my podcast duty if I didn't ask you to tell more of the story. Of that, right? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't me, obviously, because I'm the sensible one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I used to work. You know, it's this is, I guess, not even that long ago, but it does feel like a culturally different moment. So, in an ad agency with you know where one whole floor is a bar, uh, mm. then it can get messy pretty yeah. quickly yeah. and pretty early on. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think I should probably not recount various <laughs> awful stories, but it's fair to say that yes, it, I think that you will regret every other version of this evening is yeah, true. Sure. And it's important, you know, to exit with dignity, I think. Yeah, most industries are really small. And again, mm. this is hard to know when you're mm. starting out and you think, oh, well, you know, 
fuck it, I've, I'm on to my next job. So, yeah. uh, but you can get that really wrong and then regret yeah. it later. And it, it's a, it is a really murky space. I remember one of my first jobs, it was just a part-time job when I was um, it just finished up at sixth form, um, was working in a bar. And we were all very excited opening this brand new bar as a big kind of concept place. Um, and the new bar manager joined us as well as the owners. Um, and he got uh, absolutely hammered yeah. that night. So vod- big vodka promotion gayons, you know, they're trying to sell us uh, this the products that we'll be selling. Um, and of course, he was fired on the spot, didn't <laughs> do his first day because in the pre-party, he'd got so drunk. And this is quite murky space, isn't it? You know, should I go to the pub? Yeah. Should I buy yeah. a round of drinks? Should should I, how much should I have? And I think there's a lot more responsibility, thankfully, around a lot of these areas now. But you can have some big impact to the things that you're doing outside of work on work itself. And of course, mm. one of the areas we talk a lot about is your social media profile and some pretty frank advice about there is a point where you're going to have to separate those brilliant uh, you know, uh, first time you were away on holiday with your mates uh, photos from something that a recruiter could see. So you always have to, we we talk about bringing your whole self to work and there's a lot of truth in that, but you do need to create a division between your work life um, and your personal life as well. And that can play in lots of different ways, but there are these gray areas where you might get drawn uh, into some pretty hefty conflict between the two, leaving parties being uh, a classic bed for that to happen. Just on the social media thing, (coughs) I also think we should all work harder to create the world where people can be fully human yeah and where there isn't this sort of pretense that no one ever gets drunk Mm. or no one ever has fun or Mm. yeah or whatever um but yeah in the current sort of working world that we're in it's not quite there is it so the practical advice needs to be a bit more yeah yeah uh, pragmatic around so that's well i think it's interesting we we got advice on this when writing this book because it's a really murky and ever-changing area mm. so um andy fipton at uh, the university of plymouth actually wrote the section for us about social responsibility and tech and the truth is a lot of what people are told in school about being having complete clarity and division between their private social media mm. and their or, or, or feeling very kind of risk averse around uh, what they might publish uh it isn't actually played out in law or isn't actually played out. Your your, yeah. your employer doesn't have kind of, I guess, uh, it, they're not able to use that against you in most cases. But that doesn't mean it's the sensible thing to do to be wildly uninhibited online. So it also means they, it also doesn't mean that they won't... Um use it against you but then blame something else well this thing you'll never know exactly so so just from a sort of cautiousness perspective Mm. it's 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 sensible to kind of approach it um with a bit of kind of reality check i guess but but it was important to us to kind of put the facts in the Mm. in the book as well because there's quite a lot of scaremongering around that stuff Mm, and i agree with you of course we should be able to be our whole selves at all times but one of the things we also talk about, because I think there's also pressure to be our whole selves at work. And actually, it is okay if you don't fancy that. Mm. So if you're someone mm. who actually needs a degree of privacy or who wants to be able to have a professional persona and a very different one at home, that is also completely okay. Mm. And I think just because it's fashionable to sort of be like, here I am and this yeah, is my whole sure, self, doesn't, yeah. mean that there's, yeah. doesn't mean that you necessarily have to adhere to that. For a lot mm. of people, it's really useful to have a slight distance between your work self and your home self. And that's mm. completely, you, you shouldn't feel like you're doing it wrong if, that's, if that applies to you. For sure. And this podcast obviously talks a lot about work-life balance. Mm. Um, so you've got a whole section in the book 
which is under the title Overwork, Stress, Sleep, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I really like. And so the thing that I really learned from that section was this idea. And I think this, I think this is your experience, Lucy, is like I can go for five weeks yeah. and really sort of uh, be at full throttle. And then I need a week where I'm just really in fallow period catching mm. up sort of sleeping a lot being a bit more distant kind of a bit know, just everything down, yeah <laughs> yeah so tell, tell us more about this five week one week yeah cycle. so i How think what we're talking about when we use that as a very personal example but is that you, throughout your working life you will start to learn and a part of it's to do with productivity and part of it's to do with pace i think mm. uh, so you will learn how you operate best so i have observed over the years um, and my working life now is very different because so, so I have the freedom now because of the sort of strange patchwork of things that I do um, to be able to kind of use this very without kind of hindrance, I guess, or use this pattern. Um, I know that I can have a full diary, deadlines every day, some high pressure shit, you know, on the horizon for about five weeks and be able to perform at that level. Uh to not kind of get flaky, to not start to become a bit less good at all of those things. Uh, and I'm someone who doesn't really like becoming less good at those things. So I could probably push it to week six, but I wouldn't be happy yeah, with the output right. at that point. So so I and, and beyond that, everything would start to get really bad. So, so I don't ever now, if I can help it, we're about to kind of come to probably week five, aren't we? Oh, no. <laughs> so I'm, I'm on the brink. I was like, as I'm talking, I'm like, yeah, it's probably about that right now. Um, <laughs> Are you also panicking about where the fallow week is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because yeah. uh, no, I think I know where it is. It's not, and, and it doesn't need to be completely fallow. I'm not so sort of wussy that I need like a week mm. on the beach at that point. But what I probably need is not, you know, so we had, like last week I did, gave, I don't know, four speeches on three different stages at, and that's absolutely fine, but it wouldn't be fine if I was doing it relentlessly. Now, yeah, some people yeah. are able to relentlessly perform at a certain level. I'm just not, I'm not. So I think there are equivalent work patterns that you will notice about yourself throughout your working life. And it's smart, even in a small way, to be able to reflect upon them and then try to plan them as mm. best as possible. And you can mm. do that even if you don't have a kind of weird patchwork uh, portfolio career like mine. With the advice we give in the book is, you know, if you've been doing, if you've been working at, whatever the equivalent of that level is in your particular job, carve out some time for yourself the following week or say, I was in every night till whatever time last week to your boss, I'd really like to leave early on Thursday. Or, yeah, yeah. you know, and and if you've been truly working to that level, then no one resents someone mm. who is self-aware enough to be able to say, I need a bit of balance. I use the word balance, you know, with yeah with caution because it's not really balanced is it it's just about i guess redressing a bit of the um a bit of the, em the emphasis really yeah and there's a thing in there where you're sort of saying you know uh we are given a number of days of paid holiday a year mm -hmm. yeah and surely a, a, a good manager would always appreciate you coming to them and saying i need to use a bit of this allocation yeah. because i've been mm you know, pushing it really hard. We've been working on this thing. You know. uh, and there's some interesting evidence out there that um, people at the start of their career are less likely to take those days holiday. They, they want to present and perform, and actually mm. it's very damaging 
call them as well. They're, they're there for a reason. Um, we'd also talk about uh, your experiment a few years ago about doing a five to nine shift yeah. rather than the nine to five one. Um, there's a history to a lot of the ways in which we work and it isn't necessarily in tune with people's energies. So helping to help you know yourself and how you work and what energizes you and what saps your energy and those points in the day where you're going to feel better and feel worse. And we're at the moment coming up to about three o'clock where I have a natural <laughs> slump every single day, uh, things that you can start to work through. Um, and as you get that understanding of yourself, um, be able to know when to allocate that work, when to organize certain chunks of your time. And I think that point of having the conversation with your boss, with your colleagues, understanding that other people have pressures on their time. Mm. And that's really important, important, the other people having pressures. I think at the beginning of your career where you're probably, you know, you don't have uh, or you're most likely to not have other demands on your time outside work, caring responsibilities. It can be quite difficult to recognise that the people that you're working with and collaborating with every day perhaps do actually care that the hours of the office are adhered to because it means they have to leg it down the road and do the nursery run. Mm. So therefore, while self-awareness about your own working patterns is really important, it's also important to observe what other people's working patterns and why yeah. they might be relevant. Uh, because I think it can, sometimes there are there can be... Um, uh, quite a lot of friction, I think, in a lot of uh, a lot of organisations where young people kind of turn up and start and don't have that sense of understanding that actually it does matter that you arrive uh, at nine because otherwise you lose a whole hour of the day at the end. Even if you're happy to stay later, someone else can't. So yeah, I think just yeah. being a bit kind of just a bit savvy, really, about how everyone's day looks different. And it's like part of that is about being self-aware so that you can be productive yeah and also part of that is being self-aware so you can be perceived well or be a good team member exactly there's so many mm. different facets that there's always going to be a tension in there yeah. somewhere right yeah i think so um let's talk about goals this is another thing <laughs> that really um resonated with me i feel like in my 20s i always had really clear three-year plans <laughs> for my career and i feel like and uh, regular listeners to this podcast will, I'm sure, <laughs> uh, be uh, probably in hard, hard agreement with the fact that mm. I have no plan now. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do stuff Planless. That, <laughs> I do stuff that I enjoy. And also, I feel like I'm also probably... The other interesting thing about reading this book in general, by the way, is I feel like I'm totally unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I no! I don't know how you feel, Lisa, <laughs> um, with, with a, a similar portfolio career, mm. but, you know, the idea of going into going back into the situation with you know toxic work cultures and bad bosses and you know and and that sort of uh that sort of uh, i was about to use the word regime which is very very, very telling <laughs> right. but it feels like so removed from how from i spend what you, how you my do. time i have yeah. so much control and autonomy yeah um and there are downsides to that too obviously but it feels like um, I feel very lucky to have that, and I feel like yeah, it'd be really too. tricky for me to go in and and sort of work. Well, in, in the interest of <laughs> in the interest of balance, I would just like to say, <laughs> lots of other people have read the book and said they wish they were twenty one again and couldn't wait to start. <laughs> so um, I don't think uh, that we should all be. Um, it's not supposed to put you off, but I totally agree. I think um, I think if you have had a career or often several careers and then have made a decision to uh, do a number of things that are, as you say, autonomous and uh, kind of have their own schedule, then I think 
the if that if that works for you, then the freedom around it uh, is a very hard thing to think about giving up. Someone yeah. asked me the other yeah. day whether I would go, whether I would take a big job and go back. <laughs> go back into work and I actually felt horrified at that mm. That's, um, which is not, not to say that I didn't have the absolute best time when I was doing all of those things it's just that I feel like um, the things that I value now are really different and actually that's just about being much older so yeah. um, I don't think I need a job title that makes me feel impressive I think I care about what I'm producing more so yeah. um so and also it's a, just a lifestyle thing the truth is you know if I had a massive job in a in a big company I would need round the clock childcare, and I yeah. don't want to do that I want to I want to run up the hill and and pick my son up from school and so and again I think that's relevant to our audience for the book because one of the things we say particularly around opportunity and promotion and uh, moving roles there is an amazing period in your 20s where you can pretty much say yes to anything. Mm. And the, that freedom is a very different kind of freedom to the one that you and I are yeah. talking about now. Yeah. And if you are the sort of person that enjoys that stuff, definitely grasp that moment because it's much, much harder later on when you know, you're thinking about things like the school run. Um, <laughs> it, that's, that should feel really distant to a lot of our, our readers. And that distance is... A really valuable thing so you know if you want to travel if you want to work abroad you know say yes do all of those things at that point because it's much harder to or it's much more complicated to do it later yeah and then probably it comes back around doesn't it when you're sort of in your 50s and your kids are older and you never have to see them and you actually have that freedom (laughs) again right it's like a sort of weird sort of uh bell curve kind of situation but talk about the goals thing right so um yeah, I always felt like in my 20s, I had sort of good three-year career plans of what next. And I was always following that advice that someone told me very early on of never think about the next job, but always think about the one mm. after that yeah. and the positioning and how to pivot towards those things or whatever. And now I don't think like that. But I love this whole thing, which is like, but what about those people who don't have a sense of purpose or ambitions that can be easily articulated? Here are a few tips on how to set up goals for people who aren't so sure. Mm. And then you talk about uh, sketch out what sketch out what you'd like to see in the future versus a specific number of years. It sometimes helps to draw rather than list them, and prioritize a few key things in that picture. Um, keep to between three and five ambitious goals. Love this one. Make them about what you want, not what you think other people mm. would like you to achieve. And that that really uh, spoke to me. And describe what will happen when you reach those goals, not how you'll get there. So I felt like there's some really good advice in there but do you feel like we're in this um uh, sort of age now with sort of social media and the, the sort of instagram world of it's it's really difficult to admit if you don't have a plan and it's it's yeah. really difficult mm. to admit if you're not quite sure or if you're in the wrong thing i think it's whatever. almost impossible to say it out loud mm. uh because everyone is so used to and you'll be talking the book about a lot of the language around social media is i think really damaging and dangerous the sort of you know Uh, you're killing it and and you're on fire and it's like well you know (laughs) first of all do we really want to be killing it and crushing Mm. it and on fire i'm not necessarily sure that sounds like a great deal of fun um sounds really stressful and um, (laughs) and and i think but that that tone means that then to to say out into the ether god i don't know i don't mean what i want to do Mm. it's it feels very counter to the the yeah. main the main themes. Yeah, I think there's a real tension here. Actually, going 
right back to the start when we were talking about that uh, careers test, who do you want to be? We're giving um, people at the start of their careers nouns. And yet we actually give all the careers advice later to be verbs. Mm. So you don't necessarily want to be a physician or a, uh, uh, you know, a podcast host or whatever. Um, you want to be several different things at once. And so it feels like the wrong advice we're giving to people at the start of their career instead of the tools to be able to navigate it. Yeah. So in the book, frankly, the jury's out about whether life goals are a good idea or not. <laughs> yeah, we're very um, sketchy on it. <laughs> I don't know that... Um, so one of the quotes that we have in the book is actually from another brilliant book called um, uh, the is the book about Rife. It's um, young people in Britain today talking about their experience. And Rosalind Janet, who's a, a journalist, talks about um, how she'd already got a book deal before she left university mm. um, and how things don't necessarily have to be in the same order. And we also spoke to Kathleen Saxton, who's a brilliant um, CEO of an executive search firm and also um, a psychotherapist who runs very different parallel careers. So I guess the point we're trying to get across is that if there ever was, there certainly isn't today this linear mm. go to school, go to some form of further or higher education, go into work, progress up the ladder in that and mm. at the end take your retirement package. Those days as I say, if they were ever there, are now completely gone. So the advice that you can do different things at different times feels very relevant. We know and have talked to many people who haven't even started that traditional career and yet have already built companies um, or maybe decided not to do that and just explore a bit of themselves and who they want to be. So I guess we're saying in the book, you know, there's a, there's a helpfulness to these goals. They can focus the attention. They can keep you moving in a certain direction. But be a bit sceptical about there being an obvious end point or an yeah. obvious set of expectations well, Or an obvious order. It. I think that yeah. point about not yeah. needing it to do, not needing to do it in the order that, you know, it's really difficult if you've been, uh, you know, merrily bobbing your way through the education system and the next thing is your A-levels and then the next thing is you do your, mm. you know, gap year or that you do, you know, it feels like the the next step is always obvious in that mm. in that process. And I think there is a risk. I mean, I remember being in my 20s and thinking, okay, well, I want, I mean, I actually am so embarrassed by this. I almost <laughs> don't want to say it out loud because it feels so, such a ridiculous thing to think. But I remember genuinely thinking I want to be, I mean, I sound, you know, insane but i wanted to be married by the time i was 30 on the board but before the time i was 30 and i wanted to have had a baby before the time i was 30 now i don't know what that was based on like, <laughs> but certainly not things that i necessarily actually wanted it was probably a collection of uh social pressures things that i thought my my parents might be pleased about like mm. they those ideas came from a really weird they weren't they weren't sort of from within mm. they were kind of just I guess, accrued. <laughs> Do you think it's like when you, like, yeah, so those feel like very much external, extrinsic yeah. narratives, right? Where But they were my goals. Like, if you'd asked so, me, I would have said those are my goals. Because you've seen, like, articles or heard talks where people have said, I was on the board before I 30, guess, or yeah. you've thought about having a kid. Or mm -hmm. So you've taken those and sort of made them yours. Yeah. But they're not, like you said there, they're not really yours. They're sort of, what no, you think I mean, your parents might like. I think they were a collection of things like. that I'd internalised, yeah. yeah. So do you think as people get older, so I'm 41 now, but I I feel like now I have a better sense of who I am. And yeah. so any goal that I put out into the world is like, this is about yeah. me, is 
very much what I want to do rather than what somebody else should want me to do. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's when why when we talk about goals in the book, that line that you read out about make sure it's something that it's mm-hmm. not just what other people might want to see on that list is really important because I do think it is harder, partly just because of age and partly because of the influences around you in your early 20s to isolate what it is that you actually, yeah. as an individual, want or need uh, for your adult life. I just think that's harder. And I suppose at 21, we all know much less about ourselves and we also much less we know much less about the options and the opportunities yeah. that are around, mm. right? So mm. once you figure both of those things out, it sort of changes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It. It's definitely easier now. <laughs> yeah. A <laughs> uh, couple of things before we finish. Um, so one thing that I, rec- I recognise a lot in uh, myself is when you talk about work-life balance and you say plot your play time as much as your work time mm. uh, tell us more about that you're much better at that than <laughs> well it's just a bit of advice i had uh, quite early on in in my career as well it's it's really easy especially in those early days to make work everything and actually that's just going to lead to stress and worry um and i think we we get given two things either a very clear task list to get done um, and a lot of pressure and time to do that without many of the skills of having the autonomy about it and actually quite a busy social life when you were younger. And I think that's great. Um, But how do you balance the two? How do you make sure that you haven't got, and I think the example we give in the book, you know, your family waiting in the restaurant around the corner with the birthday uh, cake with the candles on it and you're still trying to hit that deadline Mm -hmm. at work. There's There's a great deal of expectation um, and yet you need to plan your personal time just as much as you do your work time. So, you know, have that to-do list with work or however you choose to, to manage your own productivity, but do that with your personal time as well. And I think that this can often be a time of great change. You might be moving where you live or who you live with or the place in which you live. And all of those um, changes are happening whilst you're trying to get your head around this whole work lark. So how do we manage both of those? Well, I think you need to take a really similar approach to all of it and say, what do I need as an individual? What makes me happy? What are the, uh, the times of pressure and the antidotes to that? And how can I get a much stronger balance between um, the two and actually where do they cross over as mm. well also there's that wonderful time to experiment with different careers you might be in a sports team or you might um, have a you know, musical project on the side you're going to need to balance that too don't compromise the stuff you're really passionate about uh, just because you've got this nine to five work going on as well understand that actually you've got more scope for flexibility than you realize yeah for sure um a friend of mine who's a, a CEO, his thing is he knows that the thing that really nourishes him is going to the theatre. Right. And so he knows that even at the most, you know, busy, frenetic yeah. time, he just makes sure he always has those theatre tickets booked. Yeah. You know, every couple of weeks he's he's spending an evening just going and having downtime and doing something else. Yeah. And yeah. Just kind of... But I think that's, that's a really good example because... Um, the, you know, the way we use culture and the way we interact with culture, and that could be theatre tickets, or it could be, you know, frankly, sitting on your bed watching Netflix. Yeah. It, it, it balances and also provide, you know, gives us other 
resources and other mm-hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we need, we all need time where we're not working in order to inform and make better our working. Yeah. And so I think yeah. that we shouldn't ever feel guilty about doing that. No. Um, and that, again, knowing that is quite hard at the beginning mm-hmm. where you feel like God away should be caning it at work because, you know, we're all killing it or whatever. And one of the biggest mistakes I think I made in my career was a, a point when I was in my late 20s, I had this big job that I'd landed. I was super excited about it. And I cleared my diary. And it was a huge mistake. I My stress levels went through the really roof. Unpopular. I was really unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> Lost all my friends. He was just, lonely. Yeah. You know, we, we kind of think we've got to clear out time to do our absolute best at work and give that priority. Mm. And sometimes, and that was definitely a case where it's a lot of pressure on, but without that release valve, became very difficult and it took me a few months to kind of get those uh get those friends back and have a bit of a life again to beg them Absolutely. To come back. Um, and then the final thing i just want to talk about because it's a kind of central theme of the podcast mm. is productivity mm. um so uh it's probably worth saying at this point that um mm. you very kindly um, reached out to me I had a bit of a zoom call yeah. so some of my productivity stuff is in your book yeah which absolutely is, which I'm really excited about <laughs> um, so you've got a little bit of my my core productivity mm. models in there and stuff like that but um, I'd love to just hear before we finish your uh, your thoughts and what you've learned about productivity over the years and the things that particularly work for you and, and mm. make you do your best work I mean it was a great that first conversation was fantastic and I knew you'd written this book and I, as I've said to you before um it's probably the most stolen book I've ever had. Uh, I've probably bought about five copies of Productivity Ninja and people just take it from my desk and it never comes back. Um, so the I think there are some core skills that are just worth learning um, at the start. The big one I learned from you was uh, how to organise the emails. Yeah. And I think that's changing. There are very different communication forms coming in, but email has been really dominant for a number of years. Um, so having the inboxes that are at action, at mm, read, yeah. you know, um, that's really helpful as well. So being able to rapidly um, break down all of those different wonky things you get in an inbox, but also writing things well. So you're helping other people take action more rapidly, mm. just actually saying what you mean. So that's hugely important. Um, I always write a long list and I categorize it A, B and C. A is it has to happen today. B, I'd love it to happen, but it probably won't. And C, that genuinely can wait. Mm. Um, we do. Th- we mentioned some of these things in the book as well, like um, as you're writing the minutes of meeting, I have a symbol that I write next to the thing I need to do. But I think it's that combination of, and, and I think you can easily forget it, whilst you're trying to make yourself productive, remember that you've got a responsibility to make others productive too. So that's a huge part of it. And again, maybe a bit reflect on the work-life balance thing. Whilst I don't recommend waking up at three in the morning and working, worrying about work, at the same time, um, do use a bit of that walk to and from work to clear your mind mm. and let the important things pop mm. up. You have an amazing yeah. resource in this brain of yours that makes you productive um, without having to kind of push it to have a, a system or a structure to it. It will, it will tell you what's important. Yeah. I think the point about um, knowing, one of the things that's really impossible to know at the very beginning of your career is the decisions that you make that impact other people's ability to do their job well. And so we're really clear in the book about, you know, before you allocate your task, before you decide where you're going to put your energy for that day, you know, prioritise things that have an impact on everybody else. Mm. Because one of the things that I've seen time and time again is people not 
actually just not even thinking about that. And that means that, you know, everyone else could be sat around waiting or, you know, there's a deadline that you didn't even realise was a deadline because you just haven't actually engaged with the person who effectively you're handing the baton to. So some of that stuff is really super simple. It's just, you know, the stuff that should be trained or that should be taught at the very beginning, but so often isn't anymore. So, um, and I think the other thing to say about the productivity section is it's a really good example. The bit where we quote all your wisdom from your book is a good example of how we treat all of the other themes in the book. So we have it's not just us kind of wanging on in our instincts. We take the expert in the field and we distill that piece of information in the most kind of accessible way possible uh, and we apply it to whatever problem or whatever theme. Uh, and the reason for that is because, let's be honest, we know that our readers are too busy and having too nice a time, <laughs> uh, either at work or outside work, to be hanging around in the business section of, of, yeah. of Waterstones. They are not kind of engaged in that material. So the sort of the best in leadership theory or productivity theory or any of those things we have distilled just to give them a sort of a sense of the best thinking about those things. Yeah, and I'd love it if people read those mm. three or four pages of my stuff in your book and they like, go, hey, I, I need this. Dive into the, <laughs> yeah. right. the whole thing. So um, that'd be uh, great for me too. Um, are there any final um, thoughts and reflections from the process of writing the book itself? How did it affect your productivity with other stuff, mm. work-life balance? <laughs> oh, um, God, our productivity with other stuff <laughs> plummeted. Yeah. How, how did you fit it in? Because you're doing this portfolio career how do you mm. fit it in around all of the other stuff that you do um it was easier for me i think because i have real flexibility mm. on diary and um and deadlines and stuff so the other things that i do definitely took a back seat throughout the writing of this although my other podcast project was also uh thriving at the time i did a ted talk halfway through the writing process which was i have to say wow. pro- that was an example of five weeks where i very nearly burnt out yeah. um but um but i think um i we wrote the book really quickly and i mm. think the reason we made quite an active decision to do that we felt like there was a quite urgent need and that the time was definitely right for How it quick? we basically wrote it in seven months yeah okay um and then obviously the edit process took a little bit longer but the sort of actual kind of getting to these eighty thousand words yeah. was pretty quick um and that was very deliberate I think there's a momentum to it that you can read and that you can kind of feel on the page. And that was really necessary for us. Um, and Steve was doing a full-time job at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's actually definitely testament to uh, how how much you've taken on board Graham's productivity. Yeah, it's true, it's because, true. I am uh, an advert. You are an advert for it, I think. <laughs> well, I think. Well, I think there's a few things to add to that. Firstly, it felt like we've been writing this book for years in our heads yeah, and in all true. of the conversations. So don't forget that, you know, work isn't just something you do on that day that you start immediately and then finish a bit later. This is something that that is drawn from lots of different sources of advice. Secondly, as with yourself, Graham, you know, there are so many people in our network and who we met through the process of writing who gave us so much insight. It was other people who have been writing this book as well. Yeah. So in some ways we became the convener of all of this um, mm. uh, as much as, as the writers of it. And, and also it tells you something about strength and, and building a good team around you. You know, I, I did a lot of the research backbone, but the stories and a lot of the writing um, were Lucy. Uh, you'd take a first draft of it, send it to me, I'd then uh, send it back. And we had, we put in those systems, different yeah. coloured text, yeah. that kind of thing. We had a brilliant editor 
at Penguin, who did, I think, one of the great things in leadership, which is genuinely believing in people, yeah. giving them the support they need and letting them get on with it. Yeah. So she was phenomenal too. We've had a great team around this, loads of different sources of advice and a wonderful willingness of people to go, yeah, I get what you're trying to do. I'm willing to help. Yeah, there wasn't. A, we spoke to hundreds of people in the writing of this. One's conversations that are very much visible in the book and conversations that are much in the background. And not a single person said, oh, I don't think there's much, <laughs> much credibility in that idea. <laughs> yeah. It was the opposite. We were overwhelmed yeah. Yeah. by the sense that the book was needed and that they could help with it and that they were excited about it existing. And that gives you a certain, that gives you a confidence to write. And the other really basic thing, and I'm, I say this knowing other people that are writing books, albeit <clears throat> fiction, we put in a schedule that meant that we pretty much had a deadline a month for so we would share with Martina our editor uh, very regularly each section I don't think I could have written it any other way so the idea that you might have had one deadline at the very end terrified me (laughs) Uh, partly maybe because it's our first book but also I think I'm kind of classic head girl syndrome like I need to I need to submit and I need to <laughs> someone say that's good carry on otherwise I can't really the idea that you're writing into the ether I found very very frightening mm. so for me that structure of having a deadline yeah. needing to deliver on it I found really comforting yeah you just made me think about um my next book maybe I'll do it that way because I do just have one deadline at the end oh I, I couldn't do mm. that I, I but do, did you did I you meet lie, it? Actually, <laughs> um I usually do I didn't with the last book right. I usually do but what I do to, to cheat that system yeah. is that about a month before that deadline, I have a, a false deadline. And yeah. that deadline is to send the book out to a bunch of focus group people who I know. I see. Read it. Yeah. So the great thing about that is then I get loads of feedback on it. And that and then that creates the last bit of sort of push momentum that I need. For the polish at the, the actual yeah. deadline. Yeah. yeah. Um, and some a couple of deadlines I've had have been like a Friday afternoon and it's got to them on the Monday morning, let's say. Okay. Um, but generally no I've stuck to those like... <laughs> Because I think, to be honest, they expect if they set a deadline on Friday afternoon in publishing, they really they mean, mean Monday. Tu- Tuesday morning. <laughs> <laughs> they know it's coming Monday, and then, so if you get it there, you know, nine a.m. Monday morning. My thought is, well, they're off on their weekend, yeah. yeah. And then on Monday morning, they're, they're expecting to sit down next week with with my book. So as long as it's there by nine a.m. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think there's, there's something about <laughs> the setting the priorities and the process as well, which I found really fascinating. You know, it. It would be really tempting to write this book and it to be really preachy and just all of our own thoughts mm. rather than the time. The stuff that took the time was the consultation we did mm. with the British Youth Council, which yeah. was so important yeah. in shaping it. All of those conversations and really picking through it. So in some ways, it wasn't the kind of, can we meet the deadline of writing the words? No, that bit was easy. That it was, was easy. all of the other bit. It was, yes, as you say, having early readers who were at all sorts of different um different parts of the process yeah. in terms of kind of yeah whether they were just about to start a job or they were job searching or any of those things mm. um and i think it was really important that we had those voices reflect on it before we did the final polish because the truth is although we've got lots of contributors from all sorts of different industries tonally the voice is ours and we're lucky mm. because we have backgrounds in very different industries so it feels mm. that automatically feels quite broad but you know we don't know what it's like to do an engineering degree mm. uh, and so it was really important that we had someone read it who yeah, had done an engineering right. yeah. degree yeah. just to check that we weren't kind of just giving us some sort of you know one version of events and, and my big learning from that was um 
not just how much time do you need to get it done, get the product out, but rather how much time and what do you need to do to get something you're genuinely proud of yeah. that is the best version of the yeah. thing. And Lucy absolutely taught me that. You know, this sense of, I'm not going to do it unless the outcome is the best version it could possibly be. Mm. And that's a really interesting challenge to think when you, you're at the start of things. Yeah, although me with books, um, and this might sound very highfalutin, I hope it doesn't, but I, I always remember the quote from Leonard Cohen, which says, um, art is never finished, just abandoned. <laughs> totally true. You totally true. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Okay, I can, at some point, I'm just going <laughs> to let it go. And then you, and then you'll spend the next month beating yourself about. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I could tell you now so. all the things that I wish yeah. we changed. <laughs> but I <laughs> think, but I think nice, doing right? that doing last, that yeah, yeah, and that last yeah. month of which I found very, very difficult, yeah. probably the most challenging and unpleasant of the whole, of what has otherwise been a really lovely experience. Mm. Uh, but that whole making sure that structurally it felt true to the original proposition those those that making sure that it was strategically meeting or th- those things i found i found that pressure in the final instance almost overwhelming uh because by that point you've got this massive bloody great document and it feels yeah. huge and th- suddenly it feels like the task you're um you know th- no one had written a book like this before and it felt like we were, it was herculean what we were trying to do <laughs> you're too close to it as well and you're so, exactly every sentence you're too familiar yeah. with and that was really really difficult but then equally in that by forcing yourself to engage in that painful last process i i think we did things that make it an infinitely better book mm. overall so for example i remember waking up at 3 a.m we were on holiday <laughs> shaking you awake and saying <laughs> yeah. um, Happy holidays. <laughs> saying, saying, oh my God, we're, you were idiots. We are, we've put the leadership section, all the stuff around leadership, we've put somewhere towards the back, which of course is the logical place when you're mm. talking about book yeah. that starts with Saturday jobs. Yeah. Leadership mm. feels like mm. it should be at the back. But the truth is the spirit of this project is about emboldening people from the start. Therefore, the section on leadership mm. has to be at the beginning. Mm. Yeah. And so things like that, yeah. you know, I think if we hadn't made those kind of significant changes that Mm. absolutely are about it being true to itself, um, I think it would be less good. But I found that last month really difficult, (laughs) which is clearly why I wasn't sleeping. Well, it's done now and it's uh, launched and out there in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So congratulations. Thank Thank you. you. Um, So it's called How to Go to Work. Um, I'd love you to just also just plug your other podcasts and the other mm-hmm. stuff that you're doing and how people can find you. So let's just finish with that. So we have a podcast for this book, which we should talk about, which uh, is very much in the same uh, area, but it's slightly more about discovery. So to our, where we started, I guess, this conversation talking about what careers advisors can't know. So our theory with the podcast is that people at the apex of their career forget to talk about the early moments of their career. And that's quite unhelpful uh, because it's really useful to be able to sort of chart someone's progress from a paper round through to mm. becoming a, you know, a, a world-class architect, for example, to pluck an example at random. So uh, the podcast is about um, having conversations with people that starts from their very first Saturday job. Uh, and we're talking to people in all sorts of industries. And we're not just talking to people who do the headline job in an industry. So for example, in fashion, whilst of course we talk to a fashion designer, uh, we also talk to a supply chain sustainability mm. uh, leader nice. um, to uh, you know stylists and buyers and all the jobs that probably you're not being told about by your careers mm. services yeah, uh, what, sure. for whatever they are. So that's called How to Go to Work. You can listen to it at howtogotowork.com or on Apple Podcasts if you search How to Go to Work. And if 
bizarrely, you also have an interest in uh, fancy dress and the role of costume <laughs> yeah. um, uh, in fashion history and how we uh, style and identify uh, ourselves, uh, which would make you a niche reader. Um, <laughs> then I also the have... <laughs> the like, that's yeah. basically me and probably yeah. someone else. Uh, then uh, I would direct you to uh, my other podcast called Dress Fancy Podcast, which is also on Instagram at Dress Fancy and in all the podcast places. Cool. And how people, how can people connect with you guys personally? Uh, we are. There is an email address actually at the front of our book. Yeah. So that's how to go to work at gmail.com. You can send us anything you want to see, somebody you want us to interview for the podcast. Yes, we'd love suggestions. Tell us that we got a bit wrong in the book. Yes. Um, and we <laughs> can do we some miss? work on that. Uh, and of course, we have the social media as well. So at how to go to work on Instagram and at how to go to work on Twitter as well. Cool. Um, well, Lucy and Steve, thanks so much. Thank for you. Being thank you for having us. And thank you for being in the book. Yeah. Thank you and good luck with it. Thanks again to Lucy and Steve. Really enjoyed that conversation. Really fun. And um, thanks also to Think Productive, who are our sponsors for the show. So if you're interested in productivity training for your organization, we do everything now, both face-to-face and virtually. Find out more at thinkproductive.com. And thanks also to Matt and Leo from Penguin for helping to arrange that. Thanks to Emily, my assistant, and also to Mark Stebbin, my producer on the show and his platform podiums. Um, one quick thing to mention at the end, which is this Friday, if you're listening to this podcast just as it comes out, this Friday, the 26th of June, I'm doing uh, a Friday fireside chat with Lawrence and Carlos from the Happy Startup School. So we'll put a link in um, the show notes for that as well. So just go to getbeyondbusy.com and you better see it there. Um, or if you just Google uh, Happy Startups, Friday, Fireside, Graham Alcott, something along those lines, it'll come up. Uh, the topic is productivity in a pandemic. So I'm going to be just sharing a few tips and tricks around productivity that I think are particularly useful right now and also probably giving people the message that it's okay to have a bad day when times are as they are Uh, i think that's one of those things that um a lot of people are uh, struggling with right now just like the, the feelings of guilt and the feelings of i've not done enough or i'm struggling with my energy or struggling with my emotions and just struggling with all the the stress and the change and the childcare and all these things that are being thrown at us um, this year so i guess a big part of my message is going to be a productivity ninja is a human not a superhero and it's okay to have a bad day uh, but yeah if you had just listened to this as it comes out um, then you still have time to sign up for productivity in a pandemic my fireside chat it's friday the 26th of june and as I say, we'll put a link at getbeyondbusy.com. You can find it from there. Uh, that's it from me. Uh, long episode, mainly because my intro was pretty long uh, this week. So if you've stuck right through to the end, then kudos to you. That's all I can say. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks time with another episode. Until then, check out getbeyondbusy.com for show notes and links and everything else, previous episodes like subscribe all that fun stuff 
to see you in two weeks. Take care. Bye for now.